Welcome to Sounding History, a podcast about music, history, climate change, and culture. I'm Chris Smith from Texas Tech University in the USA. And I'm Tom Irvine from the University of Southampton in the UK. This is a podcast about the global history of music with a twist. Our history is not shaped around famous performers, composers, and works, but rather as reflections upon the relationship between sound and the exploitation of Earth's resources. Today, scientists and historians alike argue that around the year 1500 of the Common Era, human extraction of natural resources began to change the climate itself. They call this new era the Anthropocene. With the Anthropocene came capitalism and the globalization of many aspects of human culture, along with settler colonialism, mass enslavement, and environmental destruction. We explore how processes like these have shaped 500 years of history and the worlds of sound we occupy today. Concentrating on three core categories, labor, energy, and data, we seek new, different, and challenging stories about music on a global scale. What shaped the world in which we find ourselves? Who are its many voices? We invite you to join us as we unpack why sound is, when, and for whom. So let's begin. I think we should grasp the bull by the proverbial horns here. This podcast comes from work on a book about the history of music in a really big time frame. And we're using this word Anthropocene, as you heard in the, in the opening. So let me unpack that a little bit. So the Anthropocene or the Anthropocene refers to a period, a proposed new period of geological time. And when you do these kinds of eras, like the Holocene or the Pleistocene or the ones you might know if you've got kids who are into dinosaurs, things like that, you know, we're talking about reading time out of the geological record. And so out of this record, you can read history. You can, things like, I don't know, a, a meteorite strikes the earth, bad things happens, you know, dinosaurs die off, right? And you can see that in the geological record if you dig a hole and you know how to read what's in the hole. So recently, if I understand this correctly, geologists have been arguing about whether or not you can see the influence of human activity if you dig the right kind of hole and whether or not we should come up with a new name for an age that reflects what you can see. And it turns out that plenty of experts think you can, and they've come up with a name for this new era called the Anthropocene, which comes from the Greek, Anthropos for human, and scene for recent, so recent human era. And so I should actually shout out a book here. This is our first book shout out of the podcast. This is The Human Planet, How We Created the Anthropocene, Simon Lewis and Mark Maslin. Every time we shout out a book, we'll put a link to that on our website so listeners can go and find it. Okay, so sticking with this metaphor of the whole, what happens is if you dig one now, you can see a change in the geological record around the year 1600. This is the story that Lewis and Maslin tell in their book. And uh, yeah, maybe a word about scale. Like we're, we're talking about the year 1600 is you know roughly 400 years ago, right? <laughs> and that's nothing in geological time that's very small amount. It does bear repeating, though, and we'll, this is something we'll say a lot, that the way that the histories of music figure chronology are drastically different than the way that geologists figure chronology. I mean, geologists might be talking about 
4.5 billion years. Yeah. And in music history, we think that we are undertaking a grand global scheme if we talk about 400 years. And so that's a first place in which our speech across disciplines requires a lot of negotiation of what's big history, what's global history. So we're entering a kind of a problem space, right? And a problem space is, is what is global history. And there are some really great examples. I'm thinking of, of work by Gary Tomlinson about the long history of music that focuses on more anthropological questions like, you know, what were the early humans doing? And we're looking, trying to, we're trying to locate something very recent in this panorama of geological time. But I take your point that around the year 1600, a whole series of events seem to coalesce and accelerate. And that acceleration is seen in human culture and global travel and technology and communications. But it also actually happens with the atmosphere itself. Yeah, so let me pick up on that. So what I've been learning preparing for this part of our work, right, is that you can see this change. So this is a live, uh, this book that I've been getting this stuff from, Simon Lewis and Mark Maslin, they're, they're both earth uh, system scientists who work in University College London. And I wouldn't say that they're, what they propose is like the last word. There's apparently some disputes about this. But if you drill in the Arctic, you can see a change in carbon in the atmosphere around the year 1600. And if you were looking at it on a graph, you would see like a spike downwards. So they call this the Orbis spike. And Orbis means whole world. It's from the Latin for the world. And they want to explain this spike downwards in carbon, right? This is like the idea of carbon in the atmosphere is obviously a topic we're all familiar with now. You can see a spike downwards in carbon around 1600, and they explain it by a massive human-created catastrophe. And this human-created catastrophe is what they call the Columbian Exchange. Ouch. Ouch. Okay. So the Columbian Exchange is, is the arrival of Europeans in South uh, and uh, Central Americas, in the Americas, full stop. So this is how Europe got potatoes and America got horses. But America got something else, which was microbes. And around and, and get ready, listeners, because this is a very large number, and it's hard to it's hard to get your head around it. Best estimates: around fifty million inhabitants of the Americas died in the aftermath of the Columbian Exchange of the arrival of Europeans because they lacked immunity to European disease, primarily smallpox. And we just need to stop there for a second and just let that sink in. Because so many people who farmed the land died, a huge amount of farmland returned to forest. And because in those latitudes, the trees grow quickly, after a few decades, they created a new forest that sucked up so much carbon that the earth began to cool. If you know your 17th century Dutch art, right, there are all those paintings of people skating around on frozen canals. That's because of what they call the Little Ice Age. And that's a result of this Orbis spike. Yeah. In the Little Ice Age, friends, the Thames froze and they had fairs in the winter of the 1650s because the Thames had frozen over solid. So what happened next is the settler colonists coming from Europe began to exploit the land in a different way than it had been exploited before. And they picked up on crops. So actually Maslin and Lewis call these drug crops. We're talking about sugar, tobacco, things that people want to buy because it makes them feel good. <laughs> and they started farming these cash crops on the Caribbean islands and Mexico and other Mesoamerican colonies and eventually in the southern states of the USA. This kind of farming required an extreme amount of human labor. 
and there weren't enough indigenous people left to do this work. So already during the catastrophe that caused the Orbis spike, colonists were experimenting with bringing labor in from other places. So there were a couple of solutions. They brought labor in from Europe. So we call these people sometimes indentured servants, and they play a big role in Chris's work, actually, and we'll talk about them in later episodes, I'm sure. Yeah, and in fact, it didn't really work. There was this wave of migration to the Americas from Europe, especially from poor regions or regions which had experienced um, economic or political turmoil, places like Ireland, on the wrong ends of battles. There was actually a word in the west of Ireland when an entire village was transported to the Sugar Islands of Barbados, for example. It was said that the village had been Barbadosed. Barbadosed, yeah. Yeah. One of the great challenges here was that because the New World, because the Americas had so much free land, it was almost impossible to keep indentured servants. And even if they didn't run away, they had a tendency to actually complete their terms of service and then travel to places where land was to be had for the asking, which was one of the main reasons that they had left Europe in the first place. And so indentured servitude didn't really work either. So moving really quickly, and I apologize to listeners who might be more specialized in these areas, but that's what happens when you try and do global history on you know small timescales. You, you wash over some details. But the real step change came from the discovery around the same time that in Africa, where Europe had been trading for many centuries, various ways, that in Africa, you could find a source of very cheap labor in the form of enslaved people. So starting in the 17th century, millions and millions of Africans were enslaved for the purposes of exploiting these agricultural resources in the Americas to create these commodities such as tobacco, sugar, and then later cotton. And you could make extraordinary amounts of money. This is a really crucial point. This wealth, which underwrote a lot of what we would call like European cultural life from that period onwards, um, came at the cost of unimaginable human suffering and death on an industrial scale. And that's definitely going to be a theme that we come back to in the podcast. Yeah, one of the words that Tom and I talked about when we were framing the descriptive language for the podcast is a word that I encountered in doing research for the podcast in the big book, which was not only the Anthropocene, but the plantation Ocene, getting at the idea that in part, this transformation, not just of climate, but also of unimaginable human suffering, came from the realization that what we would now call factory farming on the plantation, tobacco, cotton, rice, or sugar, could be a source of unimaginable wealth if it was rationalized and industrialized and thus monetized. We're trying to build a bridge here from the, this change in the geological record to a change in the way people worked. Okay, and that brings us to one of those keywords we were talking about in the intro, labor. So labor is a sort of a structuring concept for part of this project, the podcast, and, and the book we're writing together. Now, in economic terms, this trade in commodities grown in South America, in the Americas, the markets for them in Europe, and the forcible transportation of enslaved people from Africa, that forms like a triangle, right? That's called the triangular trade. The arrival of so many people from Africa in the Americas made a big difference to the cultural and social and political life of the Americas. And the arrival of so much wealth, like on the other piece of the triangle, of so much wealth in Europe, in particular in Northwestern Europe, changed the way people lived, including, and now we're coming to the part that's important to us, 
including how people made, heard, and paid for music. And the price that was paid for that music. So that's always going to be in our minds here is, I guess we need to put our cards on the table, right, Chris? So we are not writing an aesthetic history of global music. We will do that, but we are, this is a kind of a real world history or a, a, to use a more academic term, a materialist approach to the history of sound and music under the sign of exploitation and different kinds of labor. So let me switch registers here really quickly right, from the big stuff. So we've dug our hole in the Antarctic and we've seen these big timescales. And I want to I come down to some individual stories to kind of illustrate this. And so I, I've got three potted individual stories. So what do you say, Chris? Shall I just, shall I just unpack uh, the first of my characters here? There are some names that will be familiar here and some nuance that may be less. So I'd say go for it. Okay, yeah. So I'm going to tell you some stories about some famous names in music history. And I'm going to start with George Frederick Handel, an English composer of German birth. And in May 1720, George Frederick Handel, who was building a very successful career in England as a migrant, bought some shares in the Royal Africa Company, which is a chartered company. So it was guaranteed by the British state. And its only purpose was the... Um, transportation of enslaved people from Africa to the Americas. And many of the people who were transported this way did not survive. And those who did were condemned in, yeah, they were condemned to lives of misery and servitude, right? We know about this because of recent work by uh, the Anglo-American music historian, David Hunter, who's been writing about this the last five or six years. And I'd like to shout out actually a um, colleague podcast. So this is a um, sound expertise podcast uh, hosted by our musicology colleague, Will Robin, who's done an excellent interview with David Hunter uh, quite recently. And I, I will put a, we'll put a link in our, um, on our pages and you can, you can find your way over that and listen to more about the discovery. It's a really interesting story about David Hunter telling about how he actually discovered the stock order uh, in a ledger for Mr. Handel was misspelled H-A-N-D-L-E, uh, and he discovered this in the National Archive uh, here in, in England, in, in London, in Kew. Um, and Handel was, um, had already invested in a similar company, in the South Sea Company, uh, which uh, had considerable interests in trading enslaved people in the Spanish-speaking parts of the Americas. So the stocks that Handel bought in 1720 that David Hunter you know, discovered the order for, uh, he sold a few months later, neither at a profit nor a loss. But his other investment that he'd made in 1715 in uh, the South Sea Company, he did hold until the 1730s, and he sold it at an enormous profit. And I need to just stop now and talk to you a little bit, Chris, about exchange rates. I'm afraid this is just one of these things that when you do this kind of work, you have to manage this, right? So I will try to be really quick. Uh, it's difficult to it's difficult to transfer money values from 300 years ago into money values today. A couple of ways, different ways you can do it. You can do it in terms of like a basket of things that you could buy with that much money. You can do it in terms of its labor value. So it's comparison to like how much, what it would cost to employ someone on a salary for that money. And I'm going to use that one, which is not the highest, but it's still quite striking. So... Handel sold up his stocks in the South Sea Company in 17th, in the early 1730s for 4.6 million pounds, pounds sterling in today's value. So that's a serious investment. And it also reminds us at all ends of this 
transnational corporate exchange, we are about gaining profit via investment in labor and driving down costs to drive up stock dividends. Those are the basic facts. And those, those facts are really not, can't be disputed. I think the point I want to make is that Handel did not buy these stocks in a, in a vacuum, right? His success as a composer in the epicenter of the financial world of the, of the triangular trade in, in London depended on good relations, right? With political patrons like the royal family who were German speakers like him. He'd actually worked for them in Germany. And more importantly, probably on relationships with wealthy people in London. And all of these patrons... I suspect all of them, were significantly invested in the triangular trade. And so Handel's own active involvement is only a small part of, of anyone who's working in his economic position of their relationship with money from slavery. So I want to come to the main point, right, which is whatever you think about the moral choice Handel may or may not have had to buy these shares. He was already totally dependent on the profits of the triangular trade the wages of the suffering, right? Because everyone who lived in 18th century England was. Was dependent upon profits. In fact, not only or exclusively profits, but an entire economic infrastructure, an entire way of thinking about the role of art music as part of cultured society implicated in the structures and profits from the slave trade. That's a really important point you're making, Chris, you know, so now you've, you've spoken about it, about how you use music to create a social position for yourself. And so my next individual story illustrates that quite well. In 1770, Wolfgang Amadei Mozart, who was 14 at the time, already very well traveled, was in Rome. And there he met an old English acquaintance who he had met four years previously in London. And this acquaintance was named William Beckford of Summerlee Hall. Again, I'm working here with fantastic research by David Hunter, who's looked into this. And the Beckford family had grown extremely wealthy from plantation holdings on Barbados. Now, William, who was actually illegitimate and not nearly the richest of his family, was still wealthy enough to be on what you would call the grand tour, right? He was a young British man of means, and he was traveling around Italy and, and looking at the ruins and looking at great art, right? And he was in, essentially, he was putting the money that he had from his family to work to acquire social distinction and cultivation. Now, Mozart wasn't doing anything much differently. Could he, together with his father, he was 14, he was, he was already writing operas, and the point was to introduce Mozart to the really important people in the world of music in Europe, and those were in Naples and Rome. And that he met Beckford there is just a sign about Mozart's own contact with this British world of wealthy people who were bringing money in from the triangular trade. All I want to point out here, and again, you know, my Mozart's scholar colleagues are going to be shouting at their speakers right now or however you're listening to this because I'm moving so quickly. But one thing we do know is that Mozart was fascinated with Britain his whole career, and he was thinking about ways to go to London so that he could make more money <laughs> because that's where the money was. And uh, it even seems that in the late 1780s, right, so if you, know, if you know the story of Mozart, you know he was in deep financial trouble for various reasons. He was actively contemplating a move to Britain to try and restore his finances. He would have been contemplating this in the knowledge that he had contacts like the Beckfords. And here's my point. Mozart never bought stock in a company that traded in enslaved people. But he was very familiar with the wealth that the triangular trade provided and the art that it enabled. And he wasn't shy about contact with his money. 
you could say in the same sense that he was just as dependent on the economy of this new Anthropocene as Handel had been in his time. So in 1790, a violinist from London, a German who had moved from Germany to London, uh, named Johann Peter Salomon, uh, traveled from London to Vienna to win over people to come and win, to compose music for a concert series that he was going to organize in London. And he was looking for someone like Mozart. Mozart turned out not to be available at that point. But Mozart's good friend, Haydn, Joseph Haydn, who had just been very pen comfortably pensioned off because his patron, Prince Esterhazy, had died, uh, Haydn was available. So Haydn did travel to London in early 1791. And he arrived in a city that was very marked by the triangular trade. So all the things, these processes that had been going on since the early 17th century were still going on in London. London had a black population in the early 1790s of around 10,000 out of just less than a million people. So that's a considerable number. And it's, it's worth remembering that the impact of the triangular trade on the way London looked was already quite profound. Yeah. And there's something to be said there too, because there were cities in the UK and elsewhere who were involved in the triangle trade in which the ultimate source, the originating source, the enslaved peoples of the Caribbean were not so visible. That kind of conversation happens about cities on the southwest coast, which profited very much from the triangle trade, but they did not necessarily have a large black population. London is different. And uh, one of the things that had changed was that in the intervening decades, a quite significant movement for the abolition of slavery had grown in Britain. But right in the 1790s, the final uh, or the beginning of the legal abolition of slavery, which started in 1806, was still some time off. And the trade in enslaved people had reached its peak. And Britain was the global leading nation in the trade in enslaved people. We're talking about 40% of the overall trade. And we talked earlier about how this requirement for labor sort of generated all sorts of other financial things. It really created a new kind of capitalism. Putting together a plantation requires a huge amount of upfront investment and promises very good profits. So how do you create financial conditions for this to work? So they were talking about banking, you know, large, large loans. And we're also talking about insurance. And so when I was preparing for this, I, I picked up some quite striking numbers. The average insurance premiums in a given year in London for enslaved people. Again, listeners, put that through your head, okay? This is actually very serious and disturbing that you we're talking about treating people as if they were perishable goods or livestock. And it's important to recognize that people perished and that part of the reason for insurance was to protect the investor in the event that the British Navy interdicted a slave ship enslavers, the slave ship crews opted to throw people overboard. And then that represented a loss to the owners. So it's impossible to imagine that some of this money didn't reach Haydn's audiences and that some of it didn't up, end up in his pocket. It's estimated that when Haydn left London after two visits in 1795, he cleared a profit of 4,300 pounds, which is 5.9 million pounds in today's money using the labor calculation, 5.9 million counts. And this money did not come from nowhere. It must have come in some significant part from the slave economy that we've been talking about from the early Anthropocene. That took a while, but I hope these three stories are worth illustrating with really familiar names, how these big processes, right? Climate process, changes in labor, the triangular trade, 
and most soberingly, the trade in enslaved people that made it possible to labor, how these underpinned the financial success of three very well-known names in Western art music. One of the things that we're doing in our collaboration in this big book is finding a place where our two areas of prior experience and scholarly investigation and authorship overlap. I think what we uncovered or discovered or are in the process of discovering through this podcast and with the help of our listeners is that if we perceive Western art music or the vernacular musics of the Americas as operating not in a silo, not in a geographic isolation, not in a economic or transnational or cultural vacuum. We realize that there are concurrences and simultaneities and resonances that reach across geographic distance at moments of very close chronological proximity. And so what I want to do for my half of this episode, the point-counterpoint complementarity intended by this podcast is to talk about a particular moment in the English-speaking Caribbean on the island of Jamaica when a young subaltern in the British Army, a young man named Abraham James, was essentially evacuated from the island of Saint-Domingue in around the year 1802 because Saint-Domingue was in the throes of what is widely understood to have been, if not the only successful, certainly the most successful rebellion of enslaved people in the New World. The revolution that was inaugurated in Saint-Domingue, later Haiti, in the 1790s by Macandal, which was led most iconically by the freedom fighter Toussaint Louverture, who was actually a Creole person, a person of mixed race, and which resulted in the defeat and evacuation of the occupying French military forces and the colonists who had been making fortunes off sugar and sending those fortunes to places like Paris and to London to fund houses in Bristol and concert venues in London and premieres in Dublin. So Abram James was evacuated from Haiti he and some members of the British Army had been in a very odd moment of colonial um, alliances of convenience had been sent by the British government to support the French attempt to resist Toisson's revolution, which attempt failed. And so Abram James with his regiment was evacuated. And he was evacuated to another island in the Caribbean, to the English-speaking island of Jamaica. Now, Abram James didn't much like Jamaica, and he was a keen amateur illustrator. He did a series of cartoons of a number of topics, mostly from an extremely critical, brutally caricature-oriented perspective, something like James Gilray or William Cruikshank, depicting all of the behaviors that he found reprehensible amongst the colonial population, the English-speaking Anglo population of Jamaica, women who smoked cigars, men who drank to excess, 
people who moved ungracefully or ungraciously, or were about to be consumed by the dreaded yellow fever, which was actually called the Irish disease in New Orleans because so many people died of the infectious yellow fever. So there's an image that I'm going to talk about today, and it's a visual image, but I think I can draw the picture, and it is also available. It's a wonderful image that's held by our own U.S. Library of Congress. But before I do that, I'm going to ask Tom to interject here and tell me what he thinks or sees as he looks. Well, we're going to talk about pictures a lot, and so this is our first our first picture. We'll always put the picture on the website so you can look at it. Please drive safely if you are behind the wheel of a of a car or something. So maybe wait till you get home. Uh, but if you're if you're sitting in a place where you can look at the picture, that might might help you to understand where we're going. And we're gonna we're gonna be working on a vocabulary as we develop the podcast for connecting pictures and sounds and sharing with you what we see. So I see this picture, a grand Jamaica ball, here on my screen, and I see. I just wanted to give the full caption because it is so very evocative. It, the caption is, a grand Jamaica ball, exclamation point, or the Creolian hop a la musti, as exhibited in Spanish town, graciously dedicated to the Honorable Mrs. R. Redacted, custodi, madam, etc., etc. And then there is a, a doggerel inscription about dance and why it's bad for you. And that actually brings me to my first point. There's an awful lot of movement in this picture. There's people moving, and maybe you could you could take us through some of the motion that we can see here. It is a framed picture, rather as if we were looking at a theatrical proscenium of a ballroom, presumably in Spanish Town, which was the old port city uh, across the harbor from Kingston in Jamaica. It's a place that Abraham James would have known well, and as a junior subaltern in the British Army, he would have attended balls in ballrooms like this. So it has a large floor. It's James's visual vocabulary. It's, it's a little exaggerated, and it's a little bit amateurish. It's pen and ink with watercolor added. We are looking at the large, expansive dance floor with tall ceilings. There is a gallery at the back end of the hall, distant from us, with an arch over it that leads presumably to the kitchens and the servants' quarters. In the gallery from left to right, we see a band of black fiddle players and then some members of the audience, including a number of men wearing military uniform. And then still looking across this gallery, we see more viewers sort of looking down as if from theatrical boxes. And then further across this gallery, we see a group of wind band players who are wearing their own uniforms. They're Anglo. Most of these people are Anglo, except for the black fiddlers. The wind band players have someone else playing cymbals who is of dark complexion. And then, I have to say it because it's the truth, at the far corner of that gallery, there's a scene of what appears to be, there's a, just an anecdote of what appears to be indecent assault, where a man in military uniform is engaged in removing the dress of a young woman. Behind a curtain next to the cymbal player. Next to the, next to the black cymbal player. So that's what's happening up above. And then down below that gallery, we have a large group of African persons of various ages and sizes, and they're clearly spectators. They are in a small cluster there at the very corner of the scene. They're looking out at the scene. But it's what's happening, as Tom said, on the dance floor that's crucial, because we have people of various skin complexions, 
wearing contrasted costume. We have the red uniforms of the British Army. We have the blue tailcoats of the British Navy. We have a group of onlookers and also dancers who are clearly colonialists. They're Anglo and they have either uh, undressed hair or they're wearing rather antiquated wigs. There's one man who's dancing, who's got a brown beard and a white wig and he's quite incongruous. And they're all moving in this fashion, which is angular and akimbo and the absolute obverse of European ideals of graceful body vocabulary. And that must be a clue, right, to the noise that's coming from above. That must be a clue to what they're hearing. This is obviously a a work of social criticism. It's obviously not meant to be a realistic depiction, but still. It's a wonderful way to say it, yeah. You can really see, you can see them hearing. So take us through what we can see them hearing. Okay, so Tom makes a good point that Abram James did not approve of these people. He, I think, I suspect that Ensign James was desperate to get back to London, quite frankly. So he did not approve of their conduct, sexual conduct, personal conduct, conduct around alcohol and tobacco. But that does not invalidate his observation. It is possible that if we read past the bias and read past the caricature, we might see, and as Tom said, even hear things in this image. Tell me, what am I hearing? Okay, we've got a black fiddle band. We've got an Anglo military wind band. We have a black percussionist. We are hearing a meeting. We are hearing a meeting of players of variant ethnicities, players of variant vocabularies, musical vocabularies. And the sound which is ensuing, which is reverberating through this large ballroom, as we sonify the image, as we infer movement from the static two-dimensional image, is the sound of meetings, meetings of musical sensibilities, meetings of cultural experiences, many of them imposed. Those black fiddlers are not free people of color. Those black families standing back in the corner near the kitchen, near the servants' quarters, they are not free people. They are enslaved people. Dare I say the young woman, the Anglo young woman who is being assaulted in the gallery is not a willing participant. So we should not underestimate the enforced nature of this exchange. But the way these people move to that music, the way they kick their legs, the way the young women reveal their ankles, the way that the British military and naval officers exaggerate their upright postures, the way that the colonials exhibit movement vocabularies and bent knees and twisted torsos that speak of an African sensibility about the body moving and rebonding to the ground, from the ground. What we are seeing, known, unknown, conscious or unconscious, is an entire complex community of people of diverse experience, diverse degrees of agency, brought into enforced contact by the mechanisms of enslavement and profit, and out of this context, this complex history, a new series of musical and movement vocabularies emerging. Just for listeners to go back over that, there is a danger when you do music history, right? As you see something like this, this looks like an awful lot of fun. You can see people clearly enjoying themselves. Clearly, there's some sort of music that's being made that we as historians might not even have any access to except through a document like this, because it wouldn't have been necessarily have been notated. And and you can think, okay, so it's a kind of, oh, there's this excellent sort of multicultural diversity already going on 
in 1802 in Jamaica. And I think what Christian said is really important is you always have to hold in your head that this diversity, diversity being a word that we value positively today in our own social and political discourse, right? That this diversity was not a matter of choice for the vast majority of people in the picture and the vast majority of people involved in the trade. It's a little bit like where the, I used the word materialist before, like it's where the rubber hits the road here. It's where the new structures that came up around 1500, people are coming together and there's, they're meeting new kinds of sounds. And that's kind of where we're headed in this project. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as a scholar, as a thinking person, as a person who seeks to manifest an ethical view of the work that I do, I believe that telling the truth of the history to the best of our knowledge, with the tools that we have, and with a preparedness to recognize the voices and experiences that have been written out of the histories, I believe that in the attempt to open space for these silenced voices, to hold space for these other experiences, what we really discover is the extraordinary complexity and remarkable resiliency of human culture, even in the midst of the industrial agricultural hellscape of the plantation. Right. To draw the bridge back to the first part of the conversation today, that's the hellscape that mainly made possible an opera in London in the 1730s, Mozart's encounter with an English friend in the Sistine Chapel in Rome, or indeed Haydn's London symphonies. They're all part and parcel of the same process that's underneath this picture. And that's what this book project is about. It's about how worlds which have sometimes been historicized as distant from one another, or realms of expression which have been historicized as somehow set apart from the complexity and struggle and pain of the phenomenal world of the Anthropocene, that these art forms, the art forms of Western art music, so-called, the myriad musics of the vernacular experience throughout the era globally, these are really all part of the same global history. And that, I think, is the project of this book and of this podcast. You've been listening to Sounding History. Keep in touch. Whether you're a music lover, history enthusiast, student, or just plain interested, we'd love to hear what you think. Contact us at soundinghistorypodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter and check out all the show notes. And follow us on Instagram at Sounding History Podcast and Twitter at Sounding History. We look forward to hearing your thoughts, questions, and suggestions. And if you like what we're doing, we'd so appreciate it if you'd leave us a review to help other folks find the show. And finally, if you're a new listener and want to learn more about who we are and the ongoing book project that inspired the podcast, check out episode one. Sounding History is funded by grants from the University of Southampton Faculty of the Arts and Humanities and by Texas Tech University. Production by SeedPod Sound at SeedPodSound.com. In our next episode, we'll be talking about the sound of labor and data. Chris will be listening to work songs on the Erie Canal, and I'll be taking us to visit Alan Turing's computer lab in post-war Manchester, where members of his team created the world's first computerized musical synthesizer. 
for fun. I'm Chris. And I'm Tom. Until next time.